Thanks, Scott. Well, good morning once again. Good to have you here. It's good to be here on this weekend. Uh, Last weekend was a little strange for some of us on staff. It was kind of in combination what I could call a a bookend weekend. Uh, Most of you know that Bob and Christy were gathering their extended family to uh, say goodbye to Christy's dad, who they lost to cancer a week ago, Friday. And uh, I got to be on the other end. (laughs) And uh, so my family was gathering, and the Howards were gathering, and uh, we got to welcome a first grandson. So that was pretty awesome. Is it pictures okay? Doesn't matter. You're going to see him anyway. Uh, So uh, let me introduce you to uh, Hudson Howard. There he is. A little dark, but uh, he's three hours old there doing his very best. Mom, is that you, look? And uh, so, very sweet. We're really, really excited. And uh, so, you got almost all the grandparents here and, and uh, Aunt Brooklyn. And, you know, so a lot of baby was here last hour. But um, anyway, we are excited. You know, when, when your children grow up, uh, a parent by that time, you know, you know your child pretty well. Parents, you kind of have that sense too. When your children have grown up, they, you know them well. And so, I fully expected that Ellen and Brendan would handle this well. You know, and you know how it goes. You have your own story. I won't tell their story. It's theirs. But, you know, the whole labor and delivery in those first days and hours, are, they're hard. They really are hard. And, and, of course, it was hard for them last weekend as well. And uh, even though I expected them to do well, I just have to say that um, the grace and, and maturity that they showed just made me so proud. It kind of caught me off guard. Not that, uh, again, I had good expectations, but you just expect to be proud about having a grandson, but just uh, proud of them as well. So, really awesome. And uh, it chokes me up every time. And it just reminded me um, of a point. I think most of us know that. I think you know this, that even when you know someone really, really well, they, they still surprise you. There's more to know about someone, right? There's always more to know about someone. There's always more potential in someone, especially when they're, they're looking to the Lord and relying on the Lord. There's just more good things that you can discover in people. It's not that we are good, but, you know, when God takes a hold and, and there's just this good possibilities there. And uh, it's true with your family and your friends. And I think, I hope you know that. If it's true with them, then how much more true is it with the Lord Jesus? There's always more you could know about Him. And the more you do know about Him, it gives you a, a, a greater and greater opportunity to express more trust in Him, and that's a good thing. In fact, that's the main thing in life, that we would express increasing levels of trust and love for Him. Today in our series in Luke, it's part number 103, keeping track, 103, and uh, we're going to cover the overnight hours. We have been kind of late on Thursday in the upper room with the disciples and the Lord's Supper, and then into the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prayed and And uh, we're going to go from there through the nighttime hours and just kind of up until daybreak. We're going to find that even as Jesus is put on trial, He gives us a chance to know Him better. 
And in knowing him better, we have a chance to trust him more. So let's do that. Let's back up a little bit, take a timeline through the night, kind of go back to the Garden of Gethsemane. We're there in that olive grove. Jesus has prayed. And this was, was last week we saw this, that they seized Jesus. They led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. And Peter followed at a distance. Last week's message was about Jesus being arrested, but how even though they took control of him seemingly, Jesus was really in control of that situation. The disciples scattered, and then Peter followed. And so there we leave the garden, and it's sort of those, we don't have times exactly, but it's those late night hours. And we move now to the, the home of the high priest Annas, who is going to interrogate Jesus. This isn't really a trial so to speak, but it's an interrogation, a questioning, and it's running through the middle of the night. You know, those hours of the night when no one really wants to be awake, you know, none of us do. N nothing really good happens at that time of day, and uh, here we are at Annas' home for this interrogation. Now, Luke, when uh, in the book of Luke, when we go to Annas' home, he covers Peter's story, who's out in the courtyard warming himself by that fire, and this is where Peter first denies Jesus. Remember, he's going to deny him three times through the nighttime hours, and this was where the first one happened. Uh, Luke doesn't cover what happens to Jesus during that time, but John does. We're in the home of Annas. He was formerly the high priest. He's not actually the high priest now. He's not in authority any longer, but he's a, a senior statesman, and I think it's a way of paying respect to continue to call him the high priest. His son-in-law, uh, Caiaphas is currently the high priest, but they call him that, and we're in his home. I think Jesus is taken there with a, a few purposes in mind. Annas, sort of being that statesman and that, that uh, scholar, is going to interrogate Jesus, looking for a way to accuse him. They're planning a trial. They want this to all happen overnight in the secret hours away from the crowds, because they we've already seen they don't trust the crowds. They're afraid of, of the popularity that Jesus has and what they might do, and they want to get this all wrapped up. And in fact, they're going to be successful. They're going to send out messengers. They're going to collect. It's the middle of the night. Everyone's asleep, but they're going to collect the Sanhedrin, you know, 70 people, bring them together, get this trial done, and, and we're going to see that they're going to be successful because by the time the city wakes up and is really going, Jesus is hanging on a cross. But Annas starts it off with an interrogation, and John does cover that. John says, meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? And then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest, the currently serving one. Now, Jesus gets slapped around a bit here, and so you might be tempted to hear his words as being a little testy, and that's really not what, he, what he's doing. Jesus isn't mouthing off. He's revealing the hearts of Annas and the other leaders, right? He does push back at the questioning. In doing so, he's opening up their hearts, and he, he, he's saying, you know, why the secret? What are we doing here? 
You know, do you ever, if you have to be out late, you know, do you ever see two cars pull into a parking lot and they, they keep their engines running and they're meeting, you know, and, and it's probably not good, right? Not, those aren't really good meetings, right? I think Jesus is saying, what are we doing here this time of day? I've been in the temple. I've been out in the open. I, I teach in synagogues and publicly. Me, what are you doing with me here late at night, right? It's an accusation. He says, we, we all understand what's going on here. And he reminds them that they could just call witnesses, but they don't want to do that, do they? Right? He reminds them that, ju- that witnesses are required in their justice system, but they're not doing that. Now, at this point at Annas' house, we drop into our text today in Luke. Luke doesn't really cover the interrogation, but he says this, the men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. And they blindfolded him and demanded, prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. Now, Luke is just being a mature, holy person to say they insulted him. He's not telling us what they said. This wasn't playground stuff, kindergarten playground stuff, right? This was vile stuff. And I think Luke's point is, is clear that now everywhere Jesus will go, he'll be mistreated. He'll be mistreated harshly from the time he's arrested on. And so there's the interrogation. And when it's concluded, we're not sure that Annas really gets very far, but he sends him off now. The trial's ready. The, the people have been gathered, and the, the time is right. They're hurrying. They're rushing. And uh, he sends them off to Caiaphas. And we find now that we're in, in the Sanhedrin's court. Now, this was the highest court in the land, and the, and the Jews actually had a, a pretty good justice system, at least for the first century. If you were in ancient times and you were going to be on trial in some country, I mean, Israel, you could do a lot worse than Israel. They had a pretty good justice system, and now Jesus is kind of at their high court, and uh, he's on trial. And it's now the really kind of early morning hours, you know, right, coming right up on sunset. In fact, Luke says, at daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. Sorry, we got a little more here. They said, if you are the Messiah, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me, and if I asked you, you would not answer. In other words, this sounds familiar, right? We've kind of had an, an exchange like this before. Like, hey, you ask me, I tell you, you don't even believe it. I ask you, you refuse to answer. Remember that whole scenario? We've been here before, Jesus says. Why are you asking me? It's, it's pointless because of you guys, not me, right? This isn't going anywhere. Now, the question is, is he the Messiah? And Jesus had affirmed that, and Luke has made a long, <laughs> 103 messages worth now, a long testimony to prove that he is Messiah. He's given us a genealogy to show us he's, in fact, the son of David. He has told us what the angels have said about Jesus. He has uh, told us stories about the fulfilled prophecies that Jesus has accomplished in his life, and the activities of the Messiah are found in Jesus. He's doing things like giving sight to the blind and raising the dead. These were things attributed to the Messiah. And we have the testimony of disciples who are, who are believing in him, trusting him, and saying, yes, you are the son of David. You are the king. 
But the problem, of course, and this we've talked about before as well, is the term Messiah was, was so heavily politicized that he, it, was a, it was a difficult thing for him to just say, yes, I am, right? Imagine for, for a moment that I had some announcements to make, some exciting new things at Gateway, which actually the staff are working on some exciting things that you'll hear about soon, but I don't get to announce that yet. But anyway, so imagine I, I tell you about all this stuff and these great things we're going to do, and, and it's really awesome, and you, let's say you respond back to me. So what you're saying is you're going to make Gateway great again. And I think, Ah, you know, I'm thinking, well, technically the words are true, but something about it, I just hesitate to let you latch on to those terms right now, you know? You just have something in your, I'm afraid you have something in your mind that I don't have in my mind. So, you know, I kind of think I want to say it a different way. And so Jesus doesn't give a, a straight answer, and he often did that with the term Messiah. He goes on and he says, but from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the majesty of God. He's referring to just a f three days away, Sunday. He's referring to his resurrection and to his ascension in heaven. He's like, well, you know who I am. I'm actually the Son of Man, and I'll be sitting next to God the Father. How about that for inflammatory? You're worried about me being Messiah? How about this? I'm the Son of Man. I'm going to sit down next to God. What's that do for you? <laughs> Now, the Son of Man is Jesus' favorite reference to himself. It's his favorite way of talking about himself or favorite title. It came with, with much less expectation or misplaced expectation than the term Messiah. It was less understood. But it was found in the Old Testament, and it was an opportunity for anyone who was interested truly in who he was to begin to explore that and to think carefully the Son of Man, you see, is a term that bridges the gap between the kingdom promises of the Messiah, which they're asking him about, and, and, and something else, the, this person called the suffering servant. And, and I don't know this exactly, but I'm guessing most scholars at that time, when they looked at Messiah and the suffering servant you also find in prophecy, like those must be different people because the, the Messiah will bring these great, wonderful promises and the suffering servant, he has a really hard time. Those are probably different people. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 son of man, I reach out and I bring those two things together. And we've, we'll, we'll look at that a little more in just a moment. But he said, you know, I'm, I'm going to sit down next to God. <laughs> and this just inflames them. And the leaders say, and they ask, are, are you then the son of God? You think you're going to walk into the throne room and sit down next to God? They're offended. And he replied, you say that I am. Then they said, why do we need any more testimony? We've heard it from his own, his own lips. See, they understood him to be claiming something just so terrible, so terrible in their ears. It was like coming right up next to saying that he was deity himself. Maybe he was. <laughs> now, we step back from this trial as they concluded here, and we think, what is the trial about? What was it not about? Well, first of all, it was not about justice. They had no intention of trying to discern truth. They didn't gather to try and figure out what the truth was. That was not their agenda. That was not their goal. And many scholars point out all of the legal rules that they broke in this trial. Jesus was not allowed a defense. 
there were conflicting witnesses, and in that system, when witnesses disagreed, you had to throw out the testimony of both of them. The uh, high priest here incorrectly gives the verdict. It was their procedure uh, among all of this group to have the most junior person vote first, innocent or guilty, so he wasn't overly influenced, and they would go up the seniority so that the high priest would vote last, so he didn't have too much influence. But here, this happens, and, and we can see it in another passage. The high priest stands up, tears his robes, and says, we're done. This is over, right? He just pronounces the verdict, and then, of course, people chime in, yes, you know, kill him, crucify him, and so forth. But all these things, two days were required for a capital offense, and, and, you know, this was probably not two hours. I don't know if it was two minutes, you know. You can read through Luke fast, that fast. But it wasn't, very, it wasn't what was required. And commentators often point these out, these lists of broken rules of the justice system. But I also think something else, there's kind of a hint at going on here as well. One of the things that some, some scholars say is that trials weren't allowed at night, and yet I think I, I get this picture. I'm not sure exactly this is how it happened, but it looks like you have all these things falling into place in precisely the same moment or a couple moments. The rooster crows, Peter denies, the sun comes up, they see it, say, our trial is now legal, you're guilty, we're done. Like they're just waiting for the letter of the law. Does that sound familiar? For three years, Jesus has been confronting them about their tendency to try and just fulfill some technical aspect of something and ignore their hearts and their minds. And here's a group of men who are corrupt and evil in their hearts and minds who have no interest in truth and yet calling it a trial and seeing the sun come up and saying, all right, we're good, as though God would rubber stamp that. We've seen this kind of problem before. The trial's not about truth. The trial is, for these leaders, about searching for a basis to convict him. They need something. They want something. They will create something to take to the Romans to convince the Romans to execute him because they can't do it themselves. And that's what they're after. Now, again, when I step back from this trial, here's the, here's the really sad part. They, maybe not in exactly these words, but they ask the question of Jesus, who are you? Who are you? But they actually didn't want to know who he was. They asked the most important question in life <laughs> and didn't care to learn the answer. They just wanted to control him. They wanted to use something he would say to be able to kill him. Now, I know that none of you want to do him harm. I'm not sure you could actually do any harm to Jesus but, but uh, at this point, but your presence here I'm taking as a, a sign of at least some interest in wanting to know who Jesus is, that you'd like to know him. But I think that this trial serves as a little bit of a warning for us and a reminder for us that if you want to come and you want to say to Jesus, I want to know who you are, you need to, to come asking him who he is, not tell him who you need him to be. 
Oh, Jesus, if you would be this for me, I will follow you. If you could be like this, I will love you. If you will be like this, I'll honor you or worship you or serve you. If you meet my qualifications or my definition, if you don't disappoint me or do something I don't like or, or, or say something about your plans or future that I find offensive, if you, if you check all the boxes, then I'll be glad to know you. That's not wanting to know him. That's asking him the question, who are you, and not really meaning it. Who are you? Let him teach you who he really is. Last week, Pastor Bob gave us uh, this challenge, Romans, Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So believing in the heart and confessing with the mouth, two sides of the same coin, they're a package deal, they come together. And, and Romans says a lot's on the line as to whether or not you believe and confess. There's a lot on the line. <laughs> well, think carefully about that. And so Pastor Bob challenged us last week, this past week, to believe in a few more situations, to trust Jesus in a few more situations right? To believe with your heart. And to confess with your mouth, maybe to a, a few more people, who He is to you and who He is in reality. Now, believing and confessing, that requires knowing who He is. Now, He was on trial, and His identity was questioned, but His identity was also revealed there. So, I want to go back through it and look at it again, because this is a chance for us to remind ourselves who He is. Luke has been heading here, and he's summarizing and it's so important for us. First of all, we see that he is the uh, son of David. He is, in fact, the Messiah. Now, we talk a lot about uh, people in Jesus' day kind of being a little bit off base with what they were expecting from Messiah. And it, it is partly true. Part of it is just a timing issue. Part of it is false expectations. But we should give them credit. A lot of things they expected from Messiah were true. They did have it right. For example, he was to be a, a descendant of David, the son of David. That was, that was true. Luke's gone to lengths to demonstrate to us that Jesus fulfills that. The, the son of David, the, the Messiah, would inherit the promises made to David. So when King David became king of Israel, God made a covenant with him. He made all these promises to him and the one who sits on his throne inherits those promises. God promised to David that his throne would be established forever. Not that David would live forever, but his throne, the right to rule over Israel from his descendants would be there forever. And that one day there would be a king, a, a son of David, who would reign and usher in this golden age of sort of safety and prosperity, that it would be just wonderful. And these are flowing out of the covenant made to David. God's blessing on His people would always be tied to the rulership of a descendant of David. So, it's really no wonder, is it, that people were hoping for it. I mean, it, it's, it com makes complete sense. Is He the Messiah? Is the Messiah here? Because that would be really, really good news. Look at this picture from the book of Ezekiel. We don't find ourselves there very often, so this is good. Ezekiel chapter 34. What an amazing picture. God is speaking. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David. Not David himself. He's already dead at this time in Ezekiel, but, but a descendant of David. And he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be 
their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will make a covenant of peace with them and rid the land of savage beasts so that they may live in the wilderness and sleep in the forest in safety. I'll make them in the places surrounding my hill a blessing. I will send down showers in season. There will be in season, notice that. There will be showers of blessing. The trees will yield their fruit and the ground will yield its crops. The people will be secure in their land. They will know that I am the Lord when I break the bars of their yoke and rescue them from the hands of those who have enslaved them. They will no longer be plundered by the nations, nor will wild animals devour them. They will live in safety and no one will make them afraid. What a great picture. What a great place to live. Are you ready? I would go live there right now. (laughs) I don't know if I have to pack or move or something. Let's go. That is a great picture. No wonder people are longing for that day. That was not to their shame that they were hoping for a Messiah. That that Roman, the Romans would be driven out was a part of the promise if it was Rome who was occupying them at the time. See, this were, these were not bad dreams. This was God's promise. And you see, for us as well, though He's the King of Israel, we understand in the New Testament He is our King as well. He is our King who provides us with every good thing. But the question is, do we trust Him to be that? We've thought about this many times, but again, it's ironic that the wealthiest people on the planet have such a hard time trusting Jesus to be their king and provider for what they need. Do you trust Him? And see, it's not just do you trust Him to provide the the next thing you need. It's do you trust Him that He has provided you with the life He wants you to have? That, you, that with Him in your life, you have what you need to live in, in a love relationship with the Lord God and to follow Him and to serve Him and to bring glory to Him through your life. Do you, believe, do you trust that He has given you what you need? That kind of King provider. Do you trust that? This week is a chance to trust Him a little more as the Son of David in your life, your king and your provider. Now, he also called himself the son of man, the son of man, his favorite term for himself. Now, you understand what he does when he throws out this term in the context of a trial? He's saying, this is not what it appears to be. Here's what it looks like. It looks like 70 old men sitting on marble seats have all the authority. (laughs) There are some soldiers with weapons around me, who seem to have all the power, and I'm just one little guy from Nazareth, beaten up already, headed for a cross with no hope. That's what it looks like, and that's not what this is. In fact, the roles are exactly the opposite, because Jesus says, I'm the Son of Man, and I will be seated at the right hand of God. And the, the real question is not who I say I am. It's who do you say I am? Because that's the basis on which trials, the great trials in human history are decided. Who do you say Jesus is? 
That's what the judge who sits at the right hand of God will make decisions on. Who do you say he is? This is this whole trial is not what it appears to be. Now, the, the name, the term son of man is uh, not broadly referenced in, Dan, in uh, the Old Testament, but the main one is in Daniel chapter 7. Great verses. Daniel chapter 7. In my vision at night, Daniel says, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man. So, it looks like a person. Looks like a human being. He's coming with the clouds of heaven. Wait, a person coming with the clouds of heaven. That's, that's interesting. And he approached the ancient of days. Uh-oh. You know, when people get near God, that's trouble. He, he approached the ancient of days, and what? He was led into his presence? Now, that's truly strange. And he was given authority and glory and sovereign power? This person was given sovereign power, and all nations and peoples and every language worshipped him. Oh, wait a second. I'm, I'm so confused now. You shall worship only the Lord your God. I'm so confused, Daniel. What is happening? Who is this son of man? that every, peoples from all nations are worshiping. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. I don't get it, Daniel. <laughs> Who is this Son of Man? Well, he's a confusing character, isn't he? If you're standing in the Old Testament or even in the first century, or it should have been puzzling if you're a leader of Israel... And someone's telling you he's the Son of Man, right? But one of the great things for us about him saying he's the Son of Man is that he's more than the Son of David. It's kind of stepping back, not just the King of Israel, but, but of all humanity. He is the Son of Man, of mankind, of humanity. That's good news for us because I don't think many of us are Israelites. So we're pretty excited about this. He's the Son of Man. And the term son of man now, how do, you, how do you make this happen? Well, Luke has been telling us for a long time now. It's the incarnation. That's how you accomplish this. That's how you take a human being, a son of man, and you find him being worshipped and giving power and dominion that lasts forever. That's how you do it. You have incarnation. You have God becoming, taking on flesh. That's how you accomplish it. And that's why Jesus loves this term, I'm the son of man. He will provide not just material blessings like the son of David, but spiritual blessings. Why? Because you understand if he just comes as the son of David, as great as that is, it is great. Great promises. He will fulfill them. Those are wonderful. See, rain in its season and abundant crops and no wild animals devouring us and break the shack. All that's good stuff. But we have another problem. If he doesn't fix the other problem, you know what you get? If you just get abundant rain, you get greedy farmers. Right? You get people who are free from slavery, but they're adulterers and liars and gossips. See, there's another problem. And the Son of Man comes, not just as the Son of David, but He comes to bridge that gap and He comes to, to, to fix us of the problem of sin. Because what's the point of all the physical blessings if we're just trapped in sin? It's a waste. It's a waste. 
Jesus had made this connection earlier in Luke chapter 17. He said, the Son of Man in His day, yeah, go ahead, think like Daniel here. In, in His day, He'll be like the lightning which flashes up the sky from, from one end to the other. It'll be glorious. There's dominion. There's power. I'm going to have it. I got it, right? But first, but first, He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation because the Son of Man is the suffering servant, and He'll accomplish all these things. The dominion, the authority, the power, they're gained by walking down a path of suffering, and He's in the midst of it. He's in the final hours of it. And that's where we find Him this day. Could you trust His grace a little more this week? Hopefully you do already, but again, think about your life. Are there, are there places in your life, are there recesses where you, where you still feel like, no, I have to be better I'm not good enough for God. I, there, there, there's something I need to do. Maybe today Jesus calls you to say, no, 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 no. Trust me completely in my grace. My grace is enough. It's complete. It's all that you could rely on. The grace of the Son of Man. I came to bridge the gap. Trust me a little more this week as the Son of Man. And then the last term is the Son of God. Now, Jesus, in the midst of His trial, He says, yeah, I'm going to sit down next to the Father. <laughs> if you thought there was any better way to make these guys upset, I, there, there wouldn't be. Like, that's it. That's it. And, and they go nuts. Like, well, then, are you, are you even going to say you're the Son of God? And He affirms it. What he's doing is he's claiming that he has a unique relationship to God, and that's blasphemy. That's blasphemy to the ears of these leaders. And actually, it is blasphemy unless it's true, right? Unless it's true. If I tell you I'm the Son of God, that's blasphemy. When Jesus tells you it, well, that's just truth. That's just truth. That's what that is. Jesus has claimed a special relationship to the Father. Back in Luke 10, he says, All things, all things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Isn't it amazing? He's, he's talking about this unique relationship that he has with the Father, God the Father, and then at the end of the verse, he slips us in there. How about that? Did you, do you see where you are? <laughs> it's amazing. He claims this unique relationship with the Father. He shares in the Father's activities and characteristics. They have the same nature, divine. They're, he uniquely knows the Father. He can reveal the Father. And He can give access to the Father. Nobody knows God unless Jesus reveals God to you. It's the only way God allows it. It's the, it's, it is His plan. There is one plan. It is the Son of God. And then He sneaks us in at the end there. Isn't that amazing? And anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal the Father. And if you know the Lord Jesus, He wants to reveal to you who God the Father is. 
Now, that too would have been blasphemous, right? To the Sanhedrin. Yet here we are. So he had this earthly life and he had this heavenly life. Romans chapter 1 kind of brings them together. He says, in his earthly life, he was born into King David's family line. So there he is standing in a trial as, a, as Messiah, as a descendant of David. And though he was sworn just from this trial, a few days later, he was shown to be the Son of God when he was raised from the dead, Sunday, by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. So there we have it. There he is. He, he's shown to us in the midst of a trial that looks so, so dark and, and desperate and corrupt. And of course, it was all these things. Even still, at this worst possible moment, Jesus is saying, here's who I am. Doesn't it make you wonder if, if maybe someone in that room was thinking, wait a second. Not saying it, because <laughs> you'd be in way too much trouble, but thinking but wait a second, what if he's right? What if it's true, right? We know there were at least two, if not three members of that Sanhedrin who had talked to Jesus and were interested in him. One of them will buy his gravesite and his gravesite and and there are soldiers standing there. They're just following orders. We don't know anything about their personal convictions or their belief system. And there are people in the room being given the opportunity to understand who he is and to respond to that by trusting him in their hearts and confessing him with their mouths. Wow. Amazing. He's the son of David, your provider king. Do you trust his plan? Do you trust the life to give you the life He wants for you. He's the Son of Man. He's suffered and He's provided forgiveness. Do you trust His grace? Maybe you could trust His grace a little more. Maybe you could talk about the grace of the Lord Jesus, the Son of Man, just a little more this week to, to, to fill this area, to fill Camas and Washugal with, with a really interesting topic like the grace of God, right? Whether we get it, it's going to rain. How about the grace of God? Why don't we talk about the grace of God a little more? Confess the Son of Man and the Son of God, a kind of closeness to God that He provides that, again, the, this, this trial, this Sanhedrin, they would, have, they would have found scandalous, but we can say, well, actually, I'm a child of God. <laughs> Not the Son of God, but, you know, the ch a child of God. You understand, they would have wanted four crosses, right? They would have wanted us on one too. Except it was the Son of God telling us we could be children of God and providing the way for us to do that. Do you trust His acceptance? Do you trust that you are fully embraced by the Father, that the, the Lord Jesus has revealed the Father to you and you are welcome in His presence? Trust it a little more. Confess it a little more this week. Let's pray. Father, um, actually, would you all just take a moment and uh, ask the Lord what He would like you to trust Him with a little more this week or to confess a little more this week?
Lord Jesus, we are amazed once again that even, even here at your trial, we see that, that there was never an hour too dark for you personally that you weren't reaching out and offering yourself, offering salvation, transformation of life, eternal with you, with the Father, with the Spirit. Thank you for the, the strength and the courage and the grace that you demonstrate to us in this, what was such a difficult time. But we thank you that you can be all these things to us today. Thank you that you offer yourself to us today. Would you change us? Would you transform us? Would you strengthen us? Would you do what is necessary in us that we could trust you more and confess you more this week so that you would be praised and you would be honored by more and more people, by more hearts, by more mouths. We pray that you will save many and that you'll use us as we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.